Well, howdy, y'all. Special shout out to all the scruffheads in the Patreon community. I really appreciate your monthly support. I also appreciate the fine folks over at Cosmetic, who you hear me talk about each week. Support the podcast at patreon.com slash south of scruffy or go to cosmedicated.com, C-A-U-S-E, medicated.com, and support the sponsor of today's show by shopping with them. Uh, Use the South of Scruffy promo code SOS20 at checkout on the Cosmetic Online store and you can get 20% off of your entire order. All right, guys, let's do it. Welcome into South of Scruffy podcast. I am Ben Fields. I am your host. This is a podcast where I talk to people, mostly people in the arts and entertainment world, but sometimes we dip out of that a little bit get into some other industries, but today is not one of those days. I uh, I talked to Silk Cozart here in the shop. It was amazing for me. Silk's an actor uh, and model, and you may know uh, Silk from White Men Can't Jump or Conspiracy Theory or one of the Ernest movies, uh, Slam Dunk Ernest. Silk was in that one as well. Uh, you can always tell a little bit about one of your friends by which one of Silk's movies they recognize him from. Uh, But Silk was amazing to chat with, and I've always heard that he was an unbelievably kind person, and that was also my experience in a big way, talking to him here in the shop. He's one of those dudes that you could just talk to forever, and uh, we we could have talked for another two or three hours on the mic, but Silk's driver was waiting outside, so I started to feel guilty about making him wait, but we did it, and it was fantastic. So let's get to it. Here we go, scruffheads, ladies and gentlemen. Silk Cozart. We're doing the podcast. Ah, sound all right? Yes. How's that? Yeah, Not good. Sounds good to me. Okay, man. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. It goes both ways, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've always thought since I since I've known about you, I'm like, that's a dude who needs a who needs a podcast himself. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have been saying that. Have they? Yeah. I remember the first time I the first time I started to recognize you was uh we were on our way into a UT basketball game and one of the guys I was with saw you hanging out there and he was like, That that that's a dude from the from the Ernest movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's so wild because everybody has a different uh, movie or TV show that they've seen that I've done that's like they recognize me from. Forget White Man Can't Jump made zillions of dollars. (laughs) Ernest, a Disney movie, you know, or Saved by the Bell episode. Really? It's like, but it was one of their top episodes. They play more than anything. So I get recognized by a younger generation. You know, from those shows. Well, you've been working so long. There's probably, you know, everybody and their parents. <laughs> yeah, and their parents. <laughs> can right. recognize you now. Well, it's like right out of college. You yeah. Know, I got to got to play. I, mean, I was hurt. Got hurt trying out for, you know, an NBA team in Denver. Mm. You know, and I, when I got hurt, I didn't want to come back home. <laughs> no, yeah. I just want to lick my wounds. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. So I did. I kind of had the same trip. I went out to LA for a couple of years to do the acting thing. And so I had, did you get the agent and all that stuff? I didn't. I was doing classes and, and just kind of studying up doing like Stella Adler technique oh. and things like that. And just trying to get on board. I was always did theater and all that. So I was, I was trying to get see, up to speed. See, I think Stella Adler and that technique scares the heck out of people if they've never done any classes before. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're stuck in there like, okay, we're going to do 
you know, <laughs> these exercises are like freaking people out. Tell yeah. me if you're not, you know, unless you have free spirit and you don't like, let's go, whatever. But not many people are like that in the beginning. Yeah, They're it's like a, definitely a technique. How do that, I? Yeah. <laughs> it's a technique that you got to dig pretty deep into and do a lot of, lot so of work. <laughs> well, look at what happened to Brando. Yeah. Lost, lost it. <laughs> because, I mean, it's like, okay, how real are we going to get? You really dig into your own brain with that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's you like, don't... okay, to cry, I have to remember my cat that, that died yeah. so I can cry. But, but that takes you out of, out of the scene in a way. Yeah. You're not in, in real time. You're, you're thinking so that you're not, you know, you're not in the moment. Right. And people like Brando, who made acting look like, you're not acting, which uh -huh. was the best acting. Yeah. You know, that's why he was called the best actor, the greatest actor ever. Right. And I, but I think Tom Cruise, uh, Tom Hanks is that way. Mm -hmm. I think Denzel is that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Meryl Streep is like the top. Here's, here's Meryl Streep. Here's Denzel and, and De Niro. Mm -hmm. Because it is my opinion, because she's different in every character. French Lieutenant's woman had nothing to do with deliverance. Deliverance French Lieutenant's Woman had nothing to do with Devil's Wears Prada, you know, or playing Queen Elizabeth mm -hmm. or any of those. They're all different characters and they're her, but she puts herself into each character, but she's not doing the same shtick. Like, you know, Tom Cruise does his little, yeah. <laughs> you yes. know, it takes you out all that time. Yeah. But a, a great, a great actor like Meryl Streep, you forget it's Meryl Streep. I'm trying to think of some more who are like that. And I don't know if I can put anybody above her. I don't know anybody. This, I mean, I've tried. I've mm -hmm. tried to think who is that way. Because it's that tough line between being a, a character actor where you're, mm -hmm. where you're taking on this new thing every single time you're getting in front of the lens. Uh, but with her, it seems like every single role she plays is unequivocally her and the yes. character. It's nuts, man. And when I learned about her, her innate ability to just capture everybody's hearts. Then I found out what she did in the beginning. She would, when she got a movie, her first movie, and when she started, she had, you know, when she started having children, in her contract, she would have written in there that, you know, I have to uh, have a home, a house, wherever we're location. I want to be able to go home to my kids during lunch and fix lunch and dinner for them. I don't want them to think that their mother is not a mother. I don't want them to think they're, you know, it's something different. Right. And they've, and I think they were almost teenagers before people. They realized she was like the biggest star in the world. <laughs> they were like, "Why are people taking pictures of us, mom? <laughs> like, not pictures of us, honey. They're taking pictures of your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows who you are. <laughs> Let's keep it that way. Yeah. You'll thank me later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, oh. you know, I just love that she took care of her family. Yeah. At the same time of working. There's probably something to that of, of trying to maintain as much normalcy as possible That's for what, yourself, too, you know? Yeah, in a crazy business. <laughs> in a very crazy business <laughs> that you have lived in. <laughs> Swam in. Yeah. So did you grow up here? Yes. In town? Knoxville. Okay. I, I actually, I was um, adopted, but not with the legal papers. I just got mm. to live with the people that ended up raising me a little um, uh, while I was coming up and my mom was a teenage mom a single mom it had oh, a lot gotcha. of things and you know being Cherokee in the 60s uh, with a little half yeah. black half Cherokee child yeah. around the Klan and around the KKK and around craziness yeah. and you know everybody was crazy at that time black people white people everybody was this crazy. wasn't the most enlightened place no in not 1960s. at that time and I just happened to come through <laughs> the gate during that time did you know any different though when you were no. growing up no I didn't know any different until I probably got 
you know, out of high school. Really? Well, my high school coach, when I first got to high school, I was two years younger than everybody in my grade. So uh, when I was a freshman, smart. no, I wish it was that. <laughs> you know, um, in the late 60s, they did that busing thing. Well, yeah. it was going on before the late 60s, but right. when I came along. To integrate schools? Yes. Uh, I went to an all-black school, uh, Solway, which yeah. is right before you get to Oak Ridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's between Carnes and, and yeah. Oak Ridge. Yeah. And it was a little elementary school, you know, it was maybe 30 kids, you know, yeah. 20 kids. And then when the busing thing happened, I, they bused me to Carnes Elementary. I was like third grade. Never, I mean- I've seen white people, boy. It's no big yeah. deal. It was just a lot of kids. Yeah, it's tractors and it's rural life. Yeah, I didn't think anything different. I just thought, okay, there's a lot more people here. Mm-hmm. But they were, because mostly the parents, you know, they were touching me and saying, ooh, it don't rub off. <sighs> I mean, that, well, that was ignorance. Yeah. And I don't think it's the kid's fault. Yeah. It's how we're raised, I think, yeah. on anything. But anyway, that's. So how did, how, did it, how did it go about, who raised you? My father's aunt and uncle, okay, who were more like grandparents for okay. his age, gotcha. goes, and um, so I was glad that they raised me. I mean, you know, in retrospect, you know, you can't no, you can't beat grandparents and people with that kind of wisdom and knowledge that you just, you know, it wasn't scholastic knowledge, but life knowledge, you know, emotional intelligence, yes, which helped me when I left there, you know, because once you leave the nest. Nobody really cares what you think. Sure. You know? Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's a big shock. If yeah. you're tr- if you're pampered as a child in so many ways, that child is going to think it's going to get the same when he leaves the house. And we realize that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to be so hard on them before, but we have to be real with them. Everybody's not going to think you're cute, honey. Yeah. No. Just because you're joined, you got on the team, it's not just... Good. That you might have a psycho coach is going to say, if you don't hit a home run, you're going to be benched yeah. for a year. Yeah, exactly. and then you know. But anyway, this- I, I heard somebody say it the other day. It was like the the most fascinating people I know in my life came from this. Just some of the most amazing adversity you would ever imagine in your life. And then they have these now seemingly normal lifestyles from coming from this crazy amounts of adversity. And then they have children. And the first thing they want to do is protect Protect them them from from all the adversity that's going to make them. (laughs) The things that we got to go through makes us stronger. Well, it builds our future, really. I feel you there. It builds our future, whether we realize it or not. Right. At the time. It's like the whole butterfly effect thing. You know, you can look, I'm sure you can look back and, and, and pick a handful of things that if you would have made a split second decision, different, what a different, like fork your life would have taken. You know, how many of us can do that? All really. I mean, that's, I, I have, I I don't call them dreams. I call them nightmares. Okay. Where you, (laughs) you know, I feel, I'm like. Running a fast break for the Knicks, mm-hmm. okay? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of the court. I'm getting ready to either drive, pull up, or pass to the left to Bernard King. That's the <laughs> dreams, right? And the next thing I wake up, I'm on a movie set going, cut! I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> I was that close. <laughs> I was almost scored, man. I was going to dunk, you know? Oh, that's like, and you, that's your that's your career in a nutshell, it, right? It, <laughs> it really is. And then all the actors I would meet along the way were not athletes, really. They were like, they played ball a little bit, you know, in mm-hmm. a mural or just played with their cousins in the driveway. And I'm like, hardcore. I'm like trying to block people's shots, right. trying to dunk on people. And they're like, uh, can't we just play the game and have fun? I'm like, <laughs> I am having fun. We need five more points. <laughs> Who's the best shooter out here? You know? Yeah, they're like, exactly. 
Nobody. <laughs> I was, so I, was, I had to learn to relax on that. Did you? Yeah. Man, yeah. I, was, I watched uh, a little bit of White Men Can't Jump just to kind of brush up for this and get ready for it. It looked good, man. Those guys looked like, I mean, Woody Harrelson looked like he could yes, handle a basketball. He can. <laughs> He, he can. can. Yeah. Yeah. He can. He's he's not going to take over a game. Right. <laughs> you know, like the movie does. And Wesley, Wesley was the lesser of the ball player. Really? He, we had to, we had a camp for six weeks. We didn't see a camera. It was just doing plays and different exercises to get those two guys mm-hmm. where they looked like they could really just ball. Yeah. And we, everybody else was real ball players around them. <laughs> I mean, Wesley's a great martial artist, Capuela. Oh, that's right. He's a Brazilian, you know, martial art. He's, I mean, he's a great athlete. Woody's a terrific athlete, Mm -hmm. but he's not like a basketball phenom. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a little slow, but he knows the game. He and an athletic type guy. Yeah, very athletic. I mean, he he's in better shape than most most twenty year olds. Seriously, yeah, he is, and he he loves he loves nature, and he tried to get me (laughs) uh, quit drinking milk, and I was like, why? He goes, you ever see a grown cow drink milk? So <laughs> I'm like, that's a stupid statement, but no, I haven't. He goes, he goes, because it's a gross for growth. It's for kittens and puppies and calves, not grown people and grown cows. And I said, okay, I, you can't argue with Woody. No. He'll come up with something like I'm that. Sure. <laughs> you know? That's great. So did did the basketball kind of sneak you into the acting world or was it the other way around? Did you have interest in both of them growing up? I had a plan. You did? I had a plan. A 12-year-old. I wrote down, I'm going to play basketball at Carnes High School. I'm going to go to play basketball at University of Tennessee High University of Tennessee. I'm going to after that I'm going to play professional basketball for 10 years. After that I'm going to be an actor for 10 years. After that, I don't know what the 10-year thing is. Yeah. After 10 years, I'm going to be a director. Awesome. And then I'm going to win Academy Awards. <laughs> That's what I wrote down on a real on a piece of paper, one piece. When of you paper. were 12? I was 11 going in almost going in, I was really? on my 12th birthday. Yeah, it was on February 1st. So you were in birthday. you were in, into both things growing up. You already kind of had a had an, an just, eye where you wanted to go. Well, I would see uh, you know, Gilligan's Island or I'd see uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and I would go, "Wow, I could do that. I could do that, but but where do you go?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm I'm a great actor here in Carnes, in the woods, you know, with yeah. the dog, yeah. you know. But where do you go to learn and be with other people like that? I see on TV, and then ironically, when I got to high school to start, you know, plays, I wanted to do plays. I couldn't wait. I was like 13 years old as a freshman. Should have been 14, 15, but mm-hmm. I'm, anyway, stuck in that thing, <laughs> and nobody knew because nobody really cared about that. They just hey. You know, just go. Right. And then by the time they found out I was, you know, two years younger than everybody else in my own grade, it was too late. You don't go back. And it hurt me academically, though, you know. You two years below when you're starting high school. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of like developmental kind of stuff that that, that all that curriculum's built for you to be a certain age in your brain. (laughs) It's true. And if you miss that, they don't repeat. Ah, yeah. You know, I mean, if you miss, and I miss math. I. And I thought I hated math, but I didn't hate math. I hated my math teacher. Really? <laughs> you know, I mean. I get that. You know, and then, because when I got older and, and um, it, certain things were explained like, oh, I could, oh, I can get to that, that answer by doing this. They didn't teach me that. If you didn't learn the way that that teacher taught mm-hmm. you, they didn't have another way. Right. And you just, 
out of luck. Yeah, they were limited as to the tools they could yes. teach with. And that's why I learned after when I started traveling how I thought, well, people from Africa were just much smarter than Americans because they learned trigonometry at eight. You mm-hmm. know, you're like, yeah. I thought, wow, how could they? And I felt, you know, intimidated when I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. I was really, it was really tough for me because I hadn't been used to, I didn't know how to study. Mm. I didn't realize there was a thing called study groups. <laughs> You're like, yeah. when I did my first study group, I was like, wow, we were in fours. One person would would study um, chapters one through three. The next one would four through seven. Mm-hmm. Next one, you know, everybody yeah. would say, and then we'd come together and when we, and we'd talk about each other's uh, chapters that we didn't have, I didn't have to read your chapters. <laughs> you didn't have to read my, we would, and I would be like, wow, who, who thought of this? I can learn four <laughs> times as much in the same amount of time. I was like, I could have, I could have been a contender. <laughs> no, no. no, but I mean, really, it, it really yeah. pissed me off when I got to college. because I, I was mad at my high school. Yes. Feel like, like school failed you a little bit. Yes. And I thought that wasn't my fault. Was right. it? And then I thought, you know, because I was catatonic. I wouldn't talk. I was, I would. And uh, when, when? In uh, school growing uh, up? In school, except for maybe the people that were kind of fun, fun, yeah. you know, maybe. But I would like not talk because I didn't know the answers to the questions. Mm-hmm. And, they, and then you didn't they would make stupid? fun. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was counting on my fingers mm-hmm. as a freshman, like a little kid. I was like. Mm-hmm. You were a kid still. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't, nobody knew yeah. that. Yeah. And they, they, and the problem with that is we don't look at that individual. We look at the type of person they fit into. Yeah. If you're black or if you're, and I'm black and Indian. So I got it. It's a joke in my family. Well, they hate me twice when they see me, <laughs> you know, in Tennessee. Nah, but um, if, like I said, they didn't, they don't repeat math, those simple, the simple basic math. Right. And if you miss that, it's a gap in your mind. I Left don't care behind. who you are. Yeah. It's like languages. If you don't learn languages at a certain time in, in your life, like mm-hmm. between like six and 10, it's very difficult to learn it. Like yeah. that's why a child can, a 10 year old can learn eight, nine different languages. Because there's no, uh, they don't have any, in, uh, you know, things to to block something like yeah. swimming. If they've never swam, that's why a child, you just throw them in the water, they start swimming because mm-hmm. they don't know, hell, it might be a snake down there. Yeah. They don't know what they a snake They don't have any is. mental blocks about it. No preconceived yeah. things to get in the way. Yeah, my four-year-old can can speak, you know, I could study any language I wanted to and I couldn't speak it that well in four years. <laughs> exactly. Rattle it off. And that, because it's just pure information, just, yeah. they just have gray matter mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I think it, the, there's the, there's some study uh, about the t- the years of your life where your brain is the most absorbs the most knowledge and and it pretty much diminishes the year, the older you get, you know, the the first year, year of your life, two years of your life, it's, it's like f- synapses just firing like yes. crazy. And then the older you get, you start to lose a little bit. So yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing that develops. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why that the brain, you see that, that, that head, you know, in a, a woman's womb, mm-hmm. a baby formed that, that, that brain. The you head's know, the first thing you yeah. see, you can recognize in an ultrasound. Yeah, that's right. You're like, I know what that is. I don't know if it's a boy or girl, but I know it. that's a human. And you know, the uh, the the mind tells the body what to do, and sure. that's what I learned about this crazy disorder of dementia and everything. It it people. I used to think, how can you die from that? Well, I, I've talked to so many people and they uh, doctors, and they said, well, Silk, you forget to breathe. Hmm. You can forget to turn the stove off. You can forget to leave the lights on. Mm-hmm. But if you forget to breathe, your body will shut down. Mm-hmm. And you can literally, your body will shut down if you if if the signals don't, if there's a disconnect. 
and it destroys other other element other organs when when just a little bit of that happens. So, did you have somebody close to you that was going through it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's tough man. right now. Yeah, that's why I came home. Yeah, gotcha. So, um, it's just a horrible thing. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, it's all good. Uh, so, where were you before you came home? Los Angeles, LA. Hollywood. How long did you spend out there? I was there for almost 30 years. Okay. So off you, and on. Okay. So you had, you had Carnes and then you played ball in college, right? Yes. Where'd you, King. where'd you play? King college yeah. in Bristol. Yes. Awesome. It was just one King college. Oh, now yeah. it's King university. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. And then people said, did you go to King college? I was like, no, I went to King university. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just sounds like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like university of Tennessee and uh, King university. No, <laughs> So athletic scholarship to go yes. play ball there? Yes. That's awesome. I had several scholarship offers, uh, even though I was two years younger than I should have been <laughs> as a senior in high school, you know. But ironically, my football coach, my, I was going to tell you earlier, my football coach my senior year, not the head coach, but one of the coaches, and all the coaches seem like head coaches when you're 12 years old, right, or 13. I was a natural, first of all, I was a natural quarterback. I had speed. I could throw. I loved hitting. Mm -hmm. I, I just love being there because it took me away from all the regular day ho-hum or getting bullied every day or getting sure. spit on. Be somebody else. Or they had to lock me in the locker room after games, football games at Carnes, Friday nights. And I, because people were waiting for me after the game, older guys and men, these were grown men. They're like, don't you look at my daughter, you some good. I'm like, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm like, I couldn't even do anything. So at three or four o'clock in the morning, I would wait till nobody's there and I would walk home. Two miles. Oh gosh. But here's the thing. That football coach, and I'm not even going to say his name, but told me, a 13-year-old child, my freshman year, first day of football practice, when he, they were separating, you know, quarterback backs over here, defense over here, lineman over there, you know, they separate you to see, you know, who can do what. Mm -hmm. I naturally went to the quarterback line because that, that was my thing. Yeah. And, they were, and, they, and he said, whoa, son, where do you think you're going? Really? And I went, uh, the quarterback. He goes, no, nah, no. Nah. He actually laughed and said, colored people ain't got the brains to play quarterback, son. Jesus. You need, you know, you need to be a defensive back, a running back, you know, maybe a wide receiver probably, but you need to forget about being a quarterback. It just ain't going to happen. It ain't in the cards. Just get used to that right now. And you tell a 13-year-old, a coach looking down on you, mean and chewing tobacco and spitting figure. and you know, hey, you know, what are you, and I'm being kind when I say this. Mm-hmm. He didn't wasn't as kind saying it to me. Right. Uh, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. You know, and the names came out there yeah. and things. And they're like, wow. And I knew it was wrong. I knew, you know, children know. Your four-year-old knows. If somebody, if Uncle Charlie was over and he happened to touch her in a certain way, mm -hmm. she knows that's not right. Yeah, I feel you. So as a 13-year-old, you, you know. definitely know. That was not right. Were you the only black kid on the on the team? or? Uh, uh, just the only one going to play I, quarterback. That was the only one that you want to play. It was like yeah. one other guy. He was older than me, but he was already established and everything. But yeah, it was just with me. Tough. I didn't understand that. I didn't. And then, and then the next year, I go to the uh, University of Tennessee all sports camp. You know, for you know kids, you're in, in your age group. You're this yeah. kind of like the Pee Wee's, minor Pee Wee's, midgets, yeah. and um, and Pete Maravich was there. Really. And was I he didn't. In college I didn't, at the time. Uh, he, no, I think he, he just. It was seventy, seventy, seventy. So I think he had just left LSU and went into. I think he was just his first starting his in the pro pros. career. And I and again, I didn't know who Pete Maravich was. I think I'd heard about you know as a 12, 13 year. You're like, mm -hmm. I think I remember him. And I was. I got to the gym 
in Stokely when it was Stokely yeah, yeah. gym. And I was, you know, shooting the ball and everything. And all of a sudden I hear behind me, what are you looking at when you're shooting that thing? <laughs> and I turn around, <laughs> it was Pete Maravich. Of course, I just saw six five white guy with gray sagging socks. And he come walking like this real slow toward me. He goes, let me ask you something there, boy. What are you really looking at? You're throwing that ball up there. What are you looking at? And, I, and he said, and don't say the rim. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this a trick question? I mean, I, I mean, the rim is there. I'm, like, I'm thinking all these things. And he, he taught me to look. It's about the target. He made the target bigger. I was, mm. I was just shooting it, just to mm-hmm. be shooting, hoping it would go in. Right. And he said, don't look at the rim. Don't look at the little loop in the front or that loop in the back that everybody yeah, that says. Everybody tells he you says, picture the rim as the center of the big imaginary rim that goes around from the edge of the backboard to the other edge of the mm-hmm. backboard. And then you got a good, you got a great idea. You ain't yeah. got time to look at a loop when somebody's guarding you. He said, you got to have a bigger target to look at right away. Yeah. And it taught me. And then he gave me a little shooting thing. I've been teaching people. I t- I've taught NBA players, college, all-stars, uh, how to shoot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of actors that think they're ballplayers. <laughs> a lot of actors that act like they're ballplayers. Yeah. You know, uh, he would say, he, he stood under the goal. He said, now shoot the ball and let it land on top of my head. But don't look at the rim. Just look at my head and mm. just shoot it up and let it drop down. Up and let it drop straight down. Like a, it was on a rope and it just dropped right over the goal. Mm. And I went, okay. So I started doing that. I would look at him and I would hit like five in a row without looking at the rim. Because I was looking at him, looking, dropping. And he said, now take a step back. And I would back. Now next thing I'd be at the foul line and it's the same shot every time. Like golf, you do the same yeah. stroke. You just use a different club. So that helped me, man. And that and that that basket was ten feet it, around for that dude, wasn't I, it? I couldn't miss. It, yeah. it became the target becomes like huge, <laughs> and then you're shooting for the center of the center. Yeah. And if you miss a little bit, it, you still got a shot. Yeah, that's amazing. And you're how old at this point? Thirteen. Plus thirteen. Fourteen. Yeah. So you started getting recruited, I guess, at some point. Not at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, a little later. Well, I wanted to. I. I it was an all sports camp, so. Uh, what was the guy's? Oh man, I can't remember his name. He was the uh, athletic director at the time. Anyway, he was in the lobby. Gus Manning. Oh yeah. Gus Manning. Um, he was in the athlete. He was in the uh, Gibbs Hall uh-huh. where all the athletes were, all the kids. And for, he saw me, and he said, "Hey, I want you." He saw me working out and playing. He said, hey, "I want you to meet somebody." So he took me in through the Gibbs Hall, and we went in. And I heard ping pong being played, and he and I'm thinking. And I play ping pong, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was the football players, UT, just, you know, hanging out, yeah. you know, and uh, one of the guys was playing. He was killing everybody. And we were just why he was like slamming and he was like my size. He looked like he was my size. Right. And uh, black. And I and I thought, um, wow, this guy's great. And then he goes, you're looking at the next quarterback, for UT. I said. The black guy? <laughs> he goes, no way. Well, what are you talking about? The black guy? Of course. Yeah. The guy. I said, who's that? He said, Conrad Holloway. Yeah. I said, okay. I said, they're going to let him play? Yeah. He goes, son, what are you talking about? And I told him the story. And he yeah, said. That's your high school coach. Yeah. He yeah. said, he said, I'm sorry that they said that. He said, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then I, me and Conrad, I met him then. Yeah. I was 30, and, he, and we've been friends ever since. Still know him. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, we, we talked. When I became an actor, he yeah. was like. I just saw a white man can't jump, you know, when it came out. Yeah, he yeah. said, I can't believe you didn't tell nobody you were in it, nothing. You just do it, you know. So he's the first black quarterback at UT, right? Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, that that was a big deal in the 70s, right? I mean, well, first of all, freshmen couldn't play at that time. 
and he they was said, a freshman too. They said you couldn't play if you're a freshman in, in uh, for you know, yeah, for varsity. Uh, yeah, for yeah. varsity. They said if he could, he would have started as a freshman. Oh, no really? question. Yeah, they said you're. Lo- he said you're looking at starting quarterback. I was like, really? <laughs> he looked like he was my size, yeah. thirty, but he was you know much bigger than that. But he because he was playing ping pong with the big six eight guys. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So. You, you did. You wanted to make it to UT to play basketball, but it was, it was. I wanted to play basketball. I knew I could play football. Football was fun and easy yeah. to me. Basketball was passion, yeah. you know. And um, but you know when they restrict you, you don't you don't know what you can do sure. until you're put in a position to perform. So I used to like most kids just play outside in the backyard by myself. You know, I'm you know I'm at the line. You know, one second left. You know, mm-hmm. everybody does that. But I was really seeing myself doing it. So when I got to the point of college ball, uh, it was I wasn't it was no uh, it wasn't I wasn't nervous. I mean I was nervous for you know playing a game, but I wasn't like oh my god what am I gonna do? I'm yeah. like give me the ball, yeah, <laughs> give me the ball. Made for this, but yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. like a natural fit. Yeah. So you end up at King, and mm-hmm. then you said at some point you uh, did you play there four years? Or no, I played the first year, my freshman uh, and sophomore year, I, uh, freshman year I played at Montreat. Oh, Anderson, yeah, and it was a junior college in North Carolina, right outside of right outside of Asheville. I Black love Montreat. Oh, isn't it the most beautiful campus? It is the most beautiful campus I've ever seen. And the teachers, the professors, live on the campus, like at King. Mm-hmm. King College, a lot of professors lived on campus, and they're in these little cottages. You know, if you didn't understand something in class, they would they would say, "Come on, come on by," you know, come over and my cottage. Go, yeah, and you go. <laughs> uh, Miss Johnson, uh, I didn't understand Chapter Four. Come on in, son. Here's some cookies and tea. <laughs> Like really? Yeah. <laughs> like it was like oh wow! And then I learned how to study at that point. Yeah, it took me about a year though. Well, yeah, you said it was tough grow, being Very two tough. years younger, growing up uh, than everybody, and then your curriculum. So Montreal was where it was where it all the rubber met the road. Oh, uh, it was, and I almost <laughs> was, became ineligible. Really? Yeah, my freshman year because it was I, I didn't realize. I thought, well, I'm on scholarship. They ain't, you know. I'm playing ball. They're like, yeah. yeah, but you have to maintain a certain grade Academics. point average. Yeah. I'm like, what's a grade point average? Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, not really. I wasn't that bad. Yeah. There were some that bad. Yeah. My wife and I got married in Black Mountain, North mm. Carolina. So I'm, I'm familiar with the neighborhood. So you know Lake Susan there? Uh-huh. Oh. We were on Lake Eden. That's oh, yeah. where we got married. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah was, That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, you're like, you got to spend a year there in the school, man. That's I know. great. <clears throat> and, and, then, the, and then to Bristol you went? Yeah. Well, I wanted to go to UT. I only yeah. went to Montreat. For, I said, I'm gonna, UT's going to pick me up. I'm going to average 50 points a game. Right. And they're going to see me and they're going to bring me back home. They can't afford to not have me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it was uh, it was really, it's kind of funny. Bert Bertelkamp and I kind of, it was, he came in and uh, he's a great player. And what a great guy. And we always joke each other because we, it was a battle. Me and him would always battle out. He went to Beard and I went to Carnes. Oh, okay. He's just such a, he was such a great player. And he was so smooth, you know, and I thought, wow, he's going to, he's probably going to go to UT. And when he got the scholarship, they were like, uh, uh, last scholarship went to Bur- Burlow I was like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I beat him sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes he beats me. <laughs> you, you were a bubble team to get yeah. in. Yeah. yeah but close. then I got to meet all those guys, Johnny Darden, when he came in, Bur- yeah. Burlow Camp, Craig Wiener. I mean, all those guys that just, uh, you know, all of them, they, we became friends. And I used to, Hitchhike, take the train from Carnes behind my house into University, uh, actually to the LNN station, mm. get off there. Mm-hmm. Now, I hitchhike, I jumped the train <laughs> at Carnes. I didn't realize it was against the law. Right. I didn't realize I could get killed yeah. by the train. Right. <laughs> I almost got killed by the train. I slipped it's dangerous. during the winter. I slipped. I slipped. 
It was cold, and the only thing that saved me was a big old hook on the side of the train. And my sweatshirt, UT sweatshirt, by the way, got caught, and I was dangling from the train, and it was it got picked up speed. I would have oh, just, it would have just cut me in half, dude. and nobody would have ever known. Man, those uh, those guys that hop those trains, the hobos or whatever, they're all they they're all missing hands oh, and everything. Exactly. I didn't they get hurt that. all the time. Yeah, until later, I was like, I was crazy. Yeah. I was stupid. Yeah. But that's how bad I wanted to play, and I wanted yeah. to play against the best. And the best was outdoor courts at UT, and sometimes they yeah. could sneak me in the PE building. You know, I got yeah. to play. Yeah. Anyway, how'd you do at King? Did well. We. Um, King was more of an academic school at that time. They weren't known for basketball. I think they were known for doctors, mm-hmm. lawyers, you yeah. know, like basketball. Yeah, it's extracurricular activity here. No, <laughs> but they had a, a Hall of Fame coach, Coach Al Nida, who's not with us now. And I learned so much from him. Really? More, I learned as much about life as I did about basketball. Mm. A quick story about him. Yeah. One day, uh, we uh, well, we played LMU, and they were the best team in our conference at that point. <laughs> yeah. At that time, they had a seven foot center, six nine guard. They had a six seven uh, forward that could just put his elbows on the rim, mm-hmm. and so they had a pro team. Yeah, and we were watching them warm up. And we're like, "Where's LMU? <laughs> That's the Lakers. That's the Globetrotters. That's the damn Lakers." Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, I was nervous. I was like, "Dang!" And, you know, we did a little scouting. And they okay, they got a seven. Okay, seven footer and his and a six nine guard. I was like, "Wow!" I'd never seen it. It was before Irving Johnson came in the picture, right? You know? So I'm thinking. How could that be? So anyway, I hit the last second shot and we beat him. Oh, nice. At home, at King. The next day, it was in the paper. Uh, I think it says, Cozart smooth as silk, S-I-L-K, in a King that. victory. So after that, you know, paper, name, picture, girls, woo You know, you walk around campus. The next thing I know, Coach Knight calls me in his office. And I go in his office, I'm like, yeah, Coach. He goes, and when I walked in, he had my picture that was in the paper and the, and the paper itself and the article like a hundred of them plastered all over his office. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. I mean, that's weird, but cool. You know, I said, coach, what's going on? He says, he shut the door. He goes, do you believe this? I said, "Uh, again, I'm thinking, is this a trick question? (laughs) Because it did happen. Mm -hmm. So do I believe it? Or am I, I believe in, you know, the team and all. He goes, no, do you believe what this newspaper and these magazines are saying right now that you're, you know, cause you scored 30, 40 points and you know, you hit the last second shot. And do you believe that you're, the, you're this and all that? And I'm thinking, how did I answer that? I said, well, uh, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Coach. He goes, he starts tearing it all up, throwing them in the trash can, picked every one of them up. Didn't say a word while he was doing that. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? He turns around after he, everything, all of them were gone. And he says, can't do that. I said, what do you mean, coach? He says, you can't have it always the way you want it. He says, if you believe this, you have to believe it when they, you have a bad game. And they mm-hmm. say, how did Cozart even put on a uniform? He mm-hmm. couldn't even guard the referee. You know, yeah. well, you had to believe that too. You can't pick. So he said, this is for fans. This media, this is for media. He said, mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to see you up there high-fiving or slapping five or whatever it is y'all do after a game, after you win. you know, it, it sends mixed signals. It looks mm-hmm. like you're not used to winning, for right. one. Yeah. And number two, you, wait till you get in your locker room with your guys that helped you get to that 
that victory. Celebrate as a team. Celebrate as a team. You're yeah. not who you, you look like an idiot out there flying around. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I do. <laughs> I yeah. do look like an idiot. But after like the one of the biggest games of your career, I, right? It you was adrenaline. High. Yeah. It's like those guys that score a football uh, touchdown and they go in the end zone, they want to do a dance. They, want, yeah. they ain't showing out. That's right. an expression. Well, yep. some of them might be showing. Them. But yeah. you know, the reality is it's an expression of Oh my God, this yeah. is the best feeling in the world. Right. You don't know what else to do, but whatever it is you do at that moment. Right. And you, uh, most of the time you don't have control over that because mm. it's in the moment. I got to think that's got to be the best feeling in the world, hitting a game winning shot or. It taught school. me so much. <laughs> you know what? The best uh, lesson that I learned, well, a, a lot of them, but I learned that the media, you don't let them dictate you, mm. you know. Is it that? And I thought I started thinking. Okay, now my interviews are going to be a little bit different, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you have a team, you know. Yeah. And and it just taught me how to handle certain situations without beating me over the head. And I, I coach not, I got it, I got it. Yeah. And from that moment on, I realized, man, this man is more than a coach. Uh, I'm learning all kind of stuff, you know. And a lot of people miss those opportunities. I think, and I think most. Young players look at their coach, whether high school or college, like a, a father figure mm-hmm. or, or a, um, a mentor. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of us don't are not blessed with having a father at home. Right. Or we might have a father-like figure. Mm-hmm. But when you don't have that at home, you're looking at that coach. It's kind of like how we look at our ministers at church. Like mm-hmm. there's God, <laughs> then there's the minister, and then yeah. there's dad and mom. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And if they mess up, yeah. you're like, ugh. Well, I think that's a— in some cases, a bit of an undue burden on coaches a little bit in a lot of different sports. Um, and, and they, you know, they go into these, they go into some of these neighborhoods and they go into these living rooms of these homes where it might be a, you know, grandfather, grandmother, an aunt, whoever raising some of these kids that don't have a father figure. And then these, these parents are entrusting, you know, their son to, to, to go, you know, live in a city, you know, hundreds away of miles away. Yeah. And they're expecting these coaches, you know, to, to take care of it, to be the father figure for these kids. And a lot of them do a really good job. I look yeah. at Rick Barnes, oh, man. What a great coach. I mean, he, he treats every one of those kids like they're his own, like they're his own son. You but know? everybody's not like that. Every coach is not like some That's coaches. True. They don't want, they don't even want to deal with the other stuff that has nothing to do with basketball. They'll they, say they're whatever. like, I don't, I'm a coach. Yeah. I don't know. But they'll say they'll say whatever they've got to in that living room to get the kid to, That's to right. get yeah. the kid to sign. Well, you know? And and then uh, you know, um, but sometimes the coaches don't realize how much influence they have mm. just being a coach. Yeah. I mean, some players you can hit on the butt, bam, get your butt out there, let's go. What's wrong with you? And look at them like you know they're gonna burn a hole through them, and they'll get a performance out of that player. You can't do that with the next player. Maybe mm-hmm. that player, you do that same thing to that player. He's going to cower. He's going to not do as well. You got to know each player, what yeah. you can take. Some, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Some, you can just give a look like Pat Summit would give a look at some of the players and they would go, oh, I got to Yeah. I got you coach. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you, know? you know, when I got all the respect in the world that I have for uh, Rick Barnes was when we were, I was having breakfast with my father-in-law at uh first watch over on. Beard. Watch. Yeah. I mean, too, over on Bearden Hill. And we were sitting there. And uh, we just see all of a sudden that, you know, they're pushing these big tables together. It looks like the last supper out there in the middle of the <laughs> restaurant. And I start to see graduate assistants walk in and, do, and then I saw Grant Williams walk in and sit <laughs> down. And then I look out the window and I see, and I see Rick Barnes driving the ex, the big black expedition. Yeah. And he's got Josiah James's mom in the passenger seat <laughs> and his dad. That was right before seat. he signed. Right? It was the day before he signed. <laughs> but I just. Smart uh, man. Uh, yeah. I just saw 
Ricky B walking him in and it was, it felt good. It didn't feel smarmy. It didn't feel yeah. like some BS trip. You know, it was like this guy, you know, he's getting to know his this players. Kid, this kid, he his has players real conversations with his guys. He yeah. didn't, it ain't false. He has real, I mean, I, I was listening to him one time, talk to his players and he was talking about race relationships mm -hmm. and stuff. I mean, he didn't pull any punches. He said, what do y'all think about? What do you think about this? He gives each one. He says, what do you think? Cause you know, a lot of players are not asked to, what they think. Right. You know, especially mm -hmm. college. But they have a voice. They need to express it, but not in the media. Right. They need to express it with each other, with the coach. And that's what he does. He's so good. I mean, I was like, wow, I wish somebody had asked me what I thought of such a situation. You know, I mean, I love discussions on racism and all this prejudice and racism stuff is happening yeah. now because I don't think people have a, a, a grasp on what racism is what prejudice is. They're putting it all in one thing and they're mm. saying, oh, if you're prejudiced if you're this and you're racist if you're that. Well, what's I don't the difference? Agree with that. I think racism is not a color thing. It's a power thing. Hmm. Um, if you own a company and you're one race and another race tries to uh, get a job and you say, I don't like the, your kind of people. Well, that's a race. That's racist, right? That's, mm -hmm. racist, that's a racist statement. Well, the person you just turned away, how can they be a racist they can make racist, they can respond to your racism, but the power is in the person mm. that owns the, the thing. The you guys got to go take your ass back home. I see what you're saying. That's where I think. And I also when they say, what do you think we can do about it? I said, stop talking about it. Why mm -hmm. are you separating us? I don't understand the term of African-American at all. And people look at me like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, because we, Africa is a continent. Mm -hmm. It's not a color. Right. There's white Africans. Yeah. There's black Africans. And there's, you know, Africans with blue eyes. Mm -hmm. There's So why are we stuck on this color thing? And when we go to a foreign country, we go to France, we're not all of a sudden French. We're still an American in France. If they come here, they're all of a sudden a, a damn American. <laughs> well, you know, why yeah. are they stuck on the African Americans? So you're considered black and be a Native American. I take offense to that. Mm. Don't put me in a box. I, yeah. Don't do it. And then that pisses people off. Sure. And I think that, that we need to have conversations, good conversations. Sure. Not judging anybody, just saying, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? I don't judge you. You don't judge me. It's getting harder and harder to do. To have. Why? To have. I think it's harder and harder to have discourse with people without people getting worked up, man. I know. But why do you think that is? So why are we so pissed off about race and color and. Why you? I mean, really? Why do you think that is? I think I think we're selling like from the hood. I think why do you think that is? <laughs> no. Why that is? I think the <laughs> the fan is just getting flamed. Uh, the the flame is getting fanned a little bit right now, and I, I I think that's for a lot of different reasons. I think there's people in power who like to see it that way. Well, yeah. Uh, which which. And, you know, it seems like election years are always crazy anyhow. Leading up to that. Yeah, le leading up to to an election. But it, it seems like we have uh, – we seem to be more divided now. Our differences are clearer than ever before. And we're very uh, – we're we seem to be very willing – to tribalize and just everybody kind of get in their own tribe. It's easy to do. Yeah. And, and, and hate the other ones. And, um, but I don't know, I don't know why it is. I think social media probably has a part of it too. Everybody's a got a really loud voice and the louder and more outrageous your voice is, 
you know, there's there's just a lot of a lot of things, but it makes me sad to see in a lot of ways because I want to love everybody. Everybody, I love everybody unless you act stupid. Yeah, uh, you know, unless well, you're an asshole, not, I like you. Yeah, you and you're know? not a, you're not an asshole because you're black or white. Right. You're an asshole because you're an your human. Natalie is an asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I I agree with uh, Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. He was uh, I saw an interview that he did. Um, I can't think of the gentleman that, that the journalist, but he was saying uh, to Morgan, he said, so it's February and it's Black History Month. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And Morgan Freeman goes, well, I don't want a Black History Month. And the guy interviewed him said, what do you mean? Why not? You're black. And he goes, OK, you're Jewish, right? And he goes, yeah. He says, do you want a Jewish uh, History Month? He goes, no. He goes, well, neither do I. <laughs> he, <laughs> goes, he goes, we're American. Yeah. It's all history. Right. And I thought, wow, that's that's true. Yeah, you would think 250 years into this thing or however far along we are that that we we it would be okay to just be an American and not What's be a black American that? or a white American or Jewish American yeah. or whatever. What's wrong with that? We've already experienced what's been happening for those years, 250 right. years. Right. What if we experience another type of energy where mm-hmm. we don't talk about the races, the mm-hmm. race? Cuz when you separate us, that makes Somebody thinks that they're so different. Then you start thinking, am I better or less? Mm-hmm. That's a human instinct. Yep. But it's caused, it, it, you know, and I think you have to go back to the very beginning to to fix anything. Because if you have a problem, let's say you're sick, you go to the doctor for the first time. Doctor's not going to start prescribing stuff for you. He's not going to start giving you injections. He's going to say, he or she's going to say, what's, uh, let me, what's about your history to your, mm-hmm. your parents, your grandparents? Sure. Are they susceptible to this right. kind of thing? Do they have heart problems? Do they have breathing problems? They have blood. And then they go from there. They have to start from the beginning. We're in the middle of the middle. Mm-hmm. And I think when we go back to the beginning, and I don't think, I, it hurts me when I hear uh, white or black people say this, uh, uh, you know, a, a white person will say, well, I don't get it. Well, why, why, you know, I didn't have anything to do with, with any of the, you know, race stuff or, or um, uh, any of that prejudice stuff that happened during Jim Crow that hundred years. And mm-hmm. that was great grandparents. And, and, and it's obvious you didn't, that's not what black people are saying. Not, not that I'm speaking for all black people, right. but I'm saying I'm speaking for the people that I've talked to over the years. Mm-hmm. All they want is to acknowledge that that exists. It's like you wouldn't dare tell a Jewish person that the Holocaust never exists. Right. Do that and see what happens. Right. So it just wanted to acknowledge it and go, you know what? That was messed up. I'm not that way. And doggone it, what can we do about it? Let's talk about it. Instead of, well, I don't know what you all are riled up about. Nobody wants to see. That pisses people off. You're right. We just want to have a conversation. Yeah. And that's it. But we don't get to that point. Yeah. I would love to do a podcast just on that and have some people that wouldn't get upset where you can't talk, but just talk about things like that. We might do that. Okay. Uh, I've, I've actually been talking to a friend about this, a friend who's very politically different lean. It leans a lot differently than I am. He's got black folks in his family married yeah. into the family, but with a very like rural, you know, uh, take, cut, yeah. With a very <laughs> rural take on, on, you know, a, a family that you would never think would, would bring a, a black person into their family. Right. But it's, 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 uh, you know, there's a bunch of us that are coming together to start to talk about are they these from cut- Crossville, by the way. No, they're not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're not, uh, but but we're talking about putting together a little roundtable discussion, and uh, I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah, I think you, you get you get all the different facets, 
and get everybody's take, but you got to be civilized about it, you know, and, and you're, you're the kind of guy who, who cares more about that than you do about being right. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I love history and I love every, I love everybody. I really do. I don't, I mean, like I said, if your kid was in trouble, I don't need to say whose kid is that before I help him. I'm like going to help and then right. go, whose kid is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, that's a yeah. white kid. I ain't helping that white kid. They yeah. got all of them. They got yeah. the money. I ain't helping them. I've heard black people say that. And yeah. I've heard so many stupid things. And I, being in the public eye now, I'm like, you know what? Okay. I, if I do have something to say sometimes and, and I'm speaking to everybody. I'm not just speaking to black folks. I'm not just speaking to white folks, you know, it's just people in general. And um, because I think we have to teach uh, some people, you would you we assume they know things, mm-hmm. and then you have a conversation. You're like, wow, they don't even know the war's over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. But uh, it, I didn't talk when I didn't know things. I was catatonic, mm-hmm. and I just was embarrassed, so I didn't say anything. And a lot of people are like that. I found so if they see that you're open and you're not going to judge them all of a sudden, but sure. way they look or dress or where they're from. Like I made a joke about Crossville, and that's known for, you know, the KKK and having the only place on the planet that the Grand Wizard they would let live, you know, and all the hangings that's been there. It's a history there. Yeah. But that don't mean everybody from Crossville's right. like that. Yeah. And that's an ignorant thing to think that all policemen are, are that way. That is the stupidest thing in the world mm-hmm. to assume that. Yeah, you take, a, you take a small sampling of a population and, and decide that they're all— <laughs> That I mean, way, if know. we did, if everybody did that, we wouldn't have a population. Yeah, we'd all be dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't judge us at our worst. You know, no. You know, if you do, then find something great about us. Mm-hmm. You can judge us that too, but they yeah. don't do that. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so you tried out for the NBA. Yes, you Nuggets. were in Denver. I was at a free agent rookie camp first, and Denver picked me up. Ah. Out of, they they chose me to come to their rookie camp. Oh, cool! So it was probably 750 uh, players for three weeks that played in the in a summer league. Out of the 750, they picked 40. Ah. The next group was uh, more like Europeans that are trying out for the mm. NBA, plus other people that didn't get a tryout in the first session. Now you got about 800 or 900 people on the second session of the camp. They picked 50 or 40 people out of that. The 80 or 100 people out of the two sessions were the summer league. And okay. then they picked 10 on each team or eight on each team. I was one of the players picked on the the second part. Okay. Uh, I've, I ran out of money. You know, I was yeah. a free agent. I went to King. You yeah. don't play on, if you don't play on national TV, nobody knows who the hell you are. Yeah. Unless you're scoring 50 points a game. Right. You can go to P. Dunk University or P. Dunk School and They'll go, hey, scoring 48 points a game. We got to see. And now we got TV attention. So the first session, I ran out of money. So it was like, you know, whatever it was, a few hundred dollars to stay at the hotel and you put yourself up in fruit. So I went to the hotel manager and I said, um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how long I'm going to be able to stay. I said, I'm, this is kind of like my last day. And they go, what's your name? I told him. So what room? I gave him the room. He says, oh, the Nuggets, the Denver Nuggets have already, uh, their scout, Ben Job, has already paid your, uh, your fee up till uh, one month. I was like, maybe you got that wrong. Uh, my name is Silk Cozart. Down. <laughs> and he said, no, that's I have it right here. I was like, the, they did? I'm like, they did? Yeah, they did. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> I was so, That was the best day of my life. I, I, went, I went in my room and all the other, a lot of guys were going out partying and stuff. And I was like, I had my fruit 
TV. I'm good. I didn't go nowhere. I stayed there and got up and early in the morning. I was like, and then the first game of the second session, I fractured my left foot. I went up, came down, uh, and it just, that, that was it. Really? That was it. And then No uh, coming back from it? Well, they said, you know, you should have broke it. The fracture, oh, really? it's going to keep bothering you. Yeah. And they said you should have snapped it in two. And back then they didn't. Back then they didn't have. Uh, they didn't have orthoscopic surgery. Yeah, where they could just fix it with a camera, yeah. Yeah. shoving right. it down your. They, yeah. It was a cast they put over my whole foot that went all up to my calf, mm. and that for two months I had, or a month and a, a month or over a month I had to wear that, and then a, another type cast. So and then when it got off, when I took it off, uh, I didn't want to come home to Knoxville. I wanted to go to. I went to Miami. That's when I started modeling and doing commercials. Yeah, I was looking at looking at some of your early work, man. <laughs> got to be in GQ and Sports Illustrated and all that stuff. Got to see all the beautiful people all over the country, yeah, all over the man. world. Well, I bet you've always had a, kind of that a, a look that's a little bit hard to put your finger on. You know what I mean? I never thought about it. I you never didn't. thought about it until um, I was in Miami and, you know, you meet agents and other mm-hmm. models and people all over. And then you see, again, you see people from all over the world. And then Carnes. I never. I only saw, you know, <laughs> just a few people, you yeah. know, every day. Yeah. And then um, the next thing I know, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm, you know, meeting like people that have traveled all over, and then they talk different, they sound different, they yeah. smell different. Right. They, you learn, and uh, they thought I was a model anyway. When I was sitting on, I was, I had my, uh, my, uh, cast covered up. Mm-hmm. You know, I was sitting on on the beach, you know, and just yeah. watching all the pretty girls walk by, and this group of just extremely beautiful people walk by, and I was just watching them, going, "Wow, what is going on?" And then one of them came back to me, and this girl says, "Aren't you? Are you? Are you going to be on the shoot?" And I was like, "Yes, yes, I'm going to be on the shoot." I didn't even know the terminology. I was like, "Yeah, the shoot, yeah." <laughs> As long as they're not shooting me, I'm good. <laughs> That's not a good word where I'm from. <laughs> and then so I just kind of got up and walked with her and she was saying, yeah, I'm from Brazil. And I was like, wow, Brazil. Wow. Where's that? Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm exactly. just and I said, um, so uh, what's going on with the shoot? She goes, oh, we're doing a swimsuit ad. Aren't, what agency are you with? And I'm thinking agency. <laughs> I'm like, how am I going to get out of this? Yeah. And I, and I said, oh, I just got here. I didn't even answer. <laughs> I, you know, I did the political thing yeah. and they asked you something you you know, yeah. well, you know, it's a great day today, yeah. you know, you yeah. know? Yeah. and she goes, uh, well, my agent is Michelle Pommier and she's the best one out here. And she used to be a Ford model and now she owns her own agency. And she's right over there and you, you should go see her after the shoot. I said, yeah, after the shoot. <laughs> and I said, by the way, where's the shoot? She goes right here. And I was like, oh, photographer comes over to me. His name is Bruce Weber. Like he was at that time, he was the most famous photographer in the world. You know, he comes over, he's like this chucky guy with a little headband on. He had like two assistants following him like little, you know, little puppies. He's like, I didn't know he was like, you know, uh, Spielberg would be right, right now. In the photography yeah, world. Yeah, in the photography yeah. world. Yeah. And they were like, Bruce, Bruce. And Bruce goes, all right, everybody, let's go. I need you, you, you. And who are you? I don't remember you. <laughs> and I went, oh, my name's Silk. He goes, what? What's a Silk? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I was like, oh, no. I'm busting you know, And he now. goes, uh, yeah, hold on. He goes, wait a minute. What? Who are you, what, who are you with? <laughs> And I was, I start, I think I said my, my agent from basketball, you know, like <laughs> LA, you know, and he goes, I have no idea who you're talking about. And what, why are you dressed like, why, where's your wardrobe? And I said, I said, sir, I said, I'm just, I'm just walking with you guys. I, I didn't, he goes, well, it, hold on. We're going to talk to you. He made a, he had his assistant go make a call. There were no cell phones. 
He had his assistant go off the beach and make a call. He comes back and he says, you have a meeting with Michelle Pommier tomorrow. And I said, oh, okay. And fortunately, the model had told me who Michelle Pommier was. Right, or you wouldn't have known. I would have said, oh, <laughs> Michelle Pommier, what? <laughs> no. Then me and Michelle became friends and she gave me she my- She represented you. Yes, yeah, she represented me. I did my first movie through her agency with Andy Garcia. Oh, uh, really? It was called Blue Skies Again. It was in nice. Miami. Yeah, Harry Hamlin. When was this, 80s? Uh, 83. 83? Yep, 83. And, and, it, and then it sprung you? You, well, you started getting uh, yeah, work? but it was a baseball movie about the first female to try out for a uh, professional baseball gotcha. team. Okay. And they we filmed it in Fort Lauderdale. And I'm not a baseball player. Yeah. <laughs> I can played, throw all, the, played all the other ones. <laughs> played when I was a kid. Yeah. But I got hit in the head, and I hated it ever since. Mm-hmm. Hated it. I just hated it. I could hit really well. I could throw really hard. It might not you had the exactly. athletic part yeah, of it. Yeah, I had the athleticism, but I didn't like the game because I, I, I would stand in the batter's box, but I would be as far, t- almost out of the batter's box. I'm yeah. thinking I'm going to get hit every yeah. every pitch. Yeah. So in the audition, I had to bat first. Mm. <laughs> and I'm yeah. thinking, this ain't going to go this well. This ain't going to work. <laughs> I said, they're going to go, who is this? Why is he sticking outside of the batter's box? Son, you got to be inside the box. I know. No, in the box, not on the edge, in there. I'm like, okay. And I was swinging out like that, you know, and they were like, get out of here. And I said, but I can throw. And they said, all right, let's see him pitch. And I was throwing heat. Mm -hmm. It was going all over the place, but it was heat. Looks good on camera. Right, right. And (laughs) we can cover that in the reverse. Okay, now we're going to have an audition for the acting, you know. Ah. So they wanted to see if you could actually play. Like, white man can't jump. We had to see if you could play first. Yeah. If you couldn't play... No need. You ain't gonna be in the movie. I, I auditioned for a short film. Paul Harrell. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. I auditioned for his film, Quick Feet, Soft Hands, up in uh, Virgi- uh, Virginia Tech in like 2005. Wow. And uh, uh, we, we did it the other way around. And acted first. Acted first, and then the baseball part. And I didn't get it. But when I saw the film, I was like, All pros. I had a better swing than that guy. I was like, <laughs> like I. I was like, I'm out. He can't swing. That guy doesn't play baseball. <laughs> well, that's what I thought of White Man Can't Jump because it was, they didn't have a lead. So the director, Ron Shelton, mm. had, he played basketball at the Hollywood Y all, for a couple of years. And I'd been playing against him and didn't know he was a director. Really? Bull Durham and all that. Excuse me. And then so when the auditions came and I walked in the room to audition, I went, hey, from the gym. <laughs> He goes, oh, I know that he didn't know I was an actor. He just knew yeah. I was a basketball player. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, I don't need to see him play. I already know he can play. Yeah. It makes uh, me look silly every time like, at the line. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ron was like, he was he was like um, Rick Barry. Really? He, he was tough. He could shoot and he could drive and all that. So how'd you get from Miami to L.A., the movies? Uh, yeah, well, uh, the movie uh, uh, Blue Skies Again, mm-hmm. when it premiered. The Andy Garcia movie? Andy Garcia. It was his first film. Actually, Mean Season was his first uh, movie, but it hadn't come out yet. Mm. And so White um, Blue Skies Again came out. It was, uh, I think, Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I'd never, that was studio movie. And I didn't know what the difference in studio movie as an independent movie, yeah. what the big difference was. So people craft saw Craft services that. is a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best uh, department on, on the set is craft <laughs> services. And um, I learned how important that was yeah, too. Yeah. Um, so that kind of got me in the loop mm. of uh, the Casting directors, yeah. producers in LA. Did you get York. a casting director who who you were tight with? Who was- um, a couple. What, what really got me was uh, Marion Dartery. She was the casting director at Warner Brothers. Okay. She was the, the casting. She discovered Warren Beatty, mm. Al Pacino. So she wow. was like eighty years old when I met her. 
And mm. she was still there. She looked like somebody's grandmother behind. She had a little shawl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she looked like real decrepit. The glasses with the yeah, chain. Yeah, she had the glasses. <laughs> she did. The whole nine. She had the little, the bifocals, not glasses. And she would say, you know, okay, let's try it again. I'm thinking. And she just had a knack for it. She, she could did. just find people. She's told me, and she will tell you that too. Yeah. She'll say, you know, I discovered Warren. Mm. You know, he didn't know what he had. Mm. And she said, and and Al Pacino, nobody wanted to use him. He was too small. He didn't, he always, he looked mean all the time. I had to tell him. And I was like, listening to this woman going, wow, she's like my grandma. She, yeah. she felt like my grandma. So she, she said to me, she says, you're, you've got everything it takes and more. She goes, you just don't know it yet. <laughs> I said, is that a good thing? That's <laughs> you know? awesome. So she's the one that brought me into conspiracy theory and. Wow. At Warner Brother, all the Warner Brother movies, uh, Marion Daugherty. Yeah. And she's no longer with us, but um, what a wonderful lady she was. And Man. I didn't know how important a casting director was. Yeah, they kind of run the show a little well, bit. Well, uh, the good ones do. Yeah. You know, they basically that in between the actor agent to the director, mm-hmm. you know, and the really good ones will bring you in just because they know you, they see something. But if they're not at a certain level of casting director, the director just wants to see, okay, I only want to see blondes mm-hmm. between 20 and 30 years old. Don't bring me brunettes uh, 18 right. or 40. Mm-hmm. You know? But if that 18 or 40 person is really talented and that casting director says, you know, something there, I got, they're not right for that role of a 25 year old, but right. I want that director to meet this talented yeah. person. So they'll bring you in like that. And that's what happened to me. I've, I've heard of a couple of really uh, really popular shows. Lost was one of them. And then uh, Parks and Recreation was another one mm-hmm. where the the casting director in, in like Parks and Recreation, for instance, uh, the, one of the characters came in and it was like, she is not right for any role ever. And she's the weirdest person I've ever met in my entire life. But we got we got to write it. Director goes, I'm going to put her somewhere. Yeah, I'll, I'll write, write her in. You remember Family Ties? Yeah. Gary David Goldberg, who created that God bless him. He's not with us either. So many people are not here. But I learned a lot from him. He created, like I said, family. He's the one that brought in uh, Michael J. Fox. Mm. And the show was written for the father, for Michael, uh, I can't think of his last name, but the father of, of, of the show. And on the pilot, Michael J. Fox got so many laughs that they started rewriting the show. And it was mm-hmm. centered, it was, now it's centered around him. Mm. Uh, so... Gary told me that he did not, uh, that Michael J. Fox came in to audition and said he was horrible. It didn't even, he was like, I didn't even notice him hardly. And Judith Weiner, who was the casting director at Paramount, said, Gary, you got to see him. You got to see, what do you think of Michael J. Fox, that kid from Canada? And he goes, who? He didn't even remember him. So she play, he says, oh, no, no, he's not right. He's a cute kid, but no. She goes, Gary, it's something about him. You got to see him again. And because of the way she, and this is Gary telling me this, and because of the way she kept going to him saying, Gary, it's, you need to see him again. And normally you wouldn't mess with, you know, he's the creator of the show. He hires the director, right. the producer, all the writers. Yeah. And he said, because of Judith said, I need to see him again. He goes, okay, bring him in again. He was like, yeah, whatever kind of thing. He comes in to audition again, blew everybody away. Because wow. sometimes an actor needs another take or another time. You might not feel well. I mean, you know, so the rest is history. Yeah. You know, and Gary said, I can't believe I missed that. I almost missed him. (laughs) You know, I mean, that was, 
And that's what I mean by casting directors kind of running the show a little bit because they can really, they can find some stuff. Those in the kind run. of casting yes. directors, the ones that, yeah. that have that kind of power. Every mm-hmm. casting director is not like, you know. Yeah, gotcha. But they, a lot of them think they have the power. They, yeah. I'm the casting director for that. Yeah, well, yeah. okay. Can you get me in? I'll yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Assistant casting yeah, right. director. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's at, right. At best. So what was your next, what was your next big, big deal after, uh, after the Andy Garcia movie? Oh, uh, you know, TV, uh, I Did moved to TV. LA, you know, um, I said, well, you know, if I'm going to do it, I need to, to move to LA. But then they said, if you're going to make it, you got to go to New York. Mm. So I was like, okay, New York, LA, I don't know anybody in, in New York. I met a, a, a photographer named Michael Paris, a Greek gentleman, great photographer, on what they call ghost sees. I don't know what they call them now, but you, you go sees where you show your portfolio. You're in an actual line of people of other models with their, that's when they actually had a physical portfolio a book yeah. with you. And you have like 10, 20, hundred, whatever the pictures you have. And I think I had like five you yeah. know, pictures in mine. And, um, I get to him and he's New York. He's from New York. Very hard. You know, New Yorkers are like, okay, wh- who's next up here? You know, and <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh my God, he's a mean guy from New York. I'm gonna... So I gets to me. I mean, he was literally looking at models pictures like, mm-hmm, like one, next, two, next, three, next. four, five. Yeah. Uh, okay, five, six, seven. Okay, next. He wouldn't say good, bad, or indifferent. No, and the model, beautiful models sitting there going, what do you think? He goes, well, obviously I didn't pick you. Yeah. <laughs> he said to say that in front of him. I'm like, yeah. that's hardcore, yeah, man. That's New York. And I'm thinking, what's he going to do to me <laughs> if he did that to that beautiful girl right there? And I got like five pictures in my book. So it gets to me and he, and uh, he's looking at it. He went, to, he didn't even look. I mean, it's like he went boom, boom, boom. Next. And I went, whoa, whoa. You didn't even see him. And he looks, he looks up. He didn't really look at me. He looks up and he goes, he goes, what's your name? I said, Silk. He goes, what kind of name is that? I says, Cherokee. It's a nickname. means running water. Da-da-da. C-Y-L-K. He goes, really? He said, I, I had a basketball pitcher in one. Just, I was, he said, do you play basketball? Or is that just a basketball shot? I said, no, I'm a, I'm a basketball player. I don't play basketball. Mm-hmm. I'm a basketball player. He goes, really? He said, all right. He says, uh, what are you doing later? You want to go play some ball? I said, yeah, let's play in Miami courts right now. We can go right now. <laughs> and he's like, well, uh, it's a few hundred people waiting on me to see the book. He said, but after that, I'll, he said, about six o'clock, I'll meet you on the courts. He knew where they were. I met him on there and we became friends. And he was a ball player, a gym rat. He would dive on the concrete after a ball. I'm like, this guy's crazy. That's my kind of guy, you know? <laughs> and he goes, hey, you know, I'm from New York. I live in Queens. You, you got a place to stay if you want to come anytime. You let me know. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. A month later, I'm like in New York. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, so, uh, yeah. He goes, why do you, t- okay, you're here. Okay. And so we became friends, stayed with him until I got my own place. That's awesome. I got with Wilhelmina, got to travel a lot more, go to Europe, you know, modeling uh, Navy ads and stuff. And I was like, wow. First time I was in, you know, Morocco. You know, I got to play That's a sailor. That's a big model, modeling center, isn't it? <laughs> huge, yeah. huge. And I didn't realize how much money is generated that way. And uh, I just signed a contract for the commercial for the you know, for the Navy. Uh-huh. And um, shoot in Morocco and we went to Italy after that. And, and the next thing I know, I'm getting calls all over the place. And the commercial's running like crazy. Well, I signed a three-year contract. Mm. So... The session fee for that was big, you know, more yeah. money than I'd ever made. And I thought, right. wow, I love this business. Well, the Achilles Laurel got taken hostage, U.S. Navy. Is that a boat? A, a ship, big yeah. ship. And the Navy, all 
everything changed. The head of, of entertainment for the Navy worldwide was in LA and said, scrapped all commercials that looked like we were having fun. Ah. Said it's a war going, it might be a war. We don't get that. It looks yeah. like these boys are laughing over there. Get, so they scrapped the commercial. I thought I was going to make a million dollars, you know? Right. I mean, you know. And royalties. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, I probably would have done close to that yeah. if it was a, if it lasted three years. It lasted six weeks. It was out. Ah, damn. And I'd already spent that money. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. At least you got paid your day rate, right? Yes. For yes. And then the Co- I was up for the Cosby show in, in New- while I was oh, in New York. Man, and it was really? between me and the guy that actually got it for the boyfriend of Sabrina LeBoc, the girl that played the oh, older cool. daughter. Yeah. It was between me and him the whole man. time. In Brooklyn, going back, met Bill Cosby. He was like really nice. Yeah. And he goes, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. And I said, oh, cool. And he said, well, you guys go back. We'll uh, tell you about the deal. So I thought I had, I thought that meant I got the job. So I called my parents, everybody. I'm going to be on the Cosby show. It's the number one show in the world. Yeah. A week later, my agent calls me and says, "Ah, it's not going to work out. I was like, Mm. what's not going to work (laughs) out? He said, well, they went another direction. They thought, Bill Cosby thought, you know, if if you stayed over at the Huxables, that you would sneak in the her da- the daughter's room. So he needed somebody that was more uh, like a um, that would just do whatever he says at any time, like a wimp. Mm. And you're not like a wimp type character. And I'm like, why didn't he tell me that then? <laughs> I, I, I'll be a wimp. I'll be a wimp. <laughs> I already told my mom and never my friends I'm going to be on the Cosby Show, and everybody thinks I'm a liar. Yeah. So that taught me a valuable lesson. I've had that lesson too. Uh, the cutting room floor. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a bad one. Firebirds. That happened to me with Tommy Lee Jones. Really? Yeah. Got, got your whole, got the family together and said, I went to the premiere me. with a date. Really? Yeah. And, and the scenes, a couple of scenes that I was, I thought I was in, I'd already told the date on the way over. I was like, yeah, and there's one scene where I do this and me and Tommy Lee Jones and, you know, and, and me and this guy. And then you get there and all of a sudden the scene comes up and it zip, it goes right by to another scene. And yeah. she looks at me and she goes, I thought that's when you, I said, oh, it's probably, they probably put it in the end. Yeah, it's probably in the end. <laughs> I'm like trying to, I was, I was getting smaller oh, and smaller. Yeah, that sinking feeling. I took like a limo it, to the thing and everything. <laughs> you yeah, know, I was yeah. like a glorified extra compared to what I said I was doing. Right. So then I really learned a big lesson, not mm-hmm. to tell anybody the role that I'm in, the, what I did until I see it. Yeah. I had never been to a premiere, you know, where, you know, every the, the media's there and I'll never... I mean, that taught me a big lesson. Big lesson. But humility till it, was, till you see yourself on the screen. Oh, then. my God. Nicolas Cage and I had a great scene, and it got cut because there was another actor that was in the scene that was horrible. Really? But I didn't think about it. Right. At the time, I thought, well, they'll cut around that. Well, yeah. they cut the whole scene. What film is that? Uh, it's called Firebirds. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Nicolas Cage, Sean Young. Okay. And uh, I played Apache in the Apache helicopter. At nice. that time, Noriega, it was a Noriega oh, yeah. thing. And the Apache helicopters was the first ones to pat, dispatch there to get him. Gotcha. And it was a million dollar helicopter. It flies upside down, flies this far over the ground and top over tops of trees, flies at night. You have night vision. Yeah. It's got two propellers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know about the player. Scud missile and everything. Yeah. That's right. Man, that's cool. What year was that? Oh, God. Let me see. You're going to make me think back then. Uh, it was in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and it was before, it was after school days. So that was 88. So it was around 80. No, it was before school days. So it was around 87, okay. 87, 88. So what, when was it? Cause it seems like white men can't jump was your, was the one that you're the proudest of. Or the, one, the one that you, you really, it's like your identity, <sighs> big, like big film that, that I kind of People remember me from with. that. Yeah. 
Right. And, and the Ernest movie, right? Yeah, and the Ernest movie. <laughs> can't forget Ernest. Yeah. Oh, that in Conspiracy Theory, because yeah. Julia Roberts is so wonderful. Yeah. But we became friends. When, so what year did you say White Man Can't Jump was? 92. 92. Did that feel like the big one when it, it happened? It did. That was the 100th year anniversary of basketball. Okay. And it was a big deal. And uh, it was such a big movie. And we didn't know. Nobody knew it was going to be that big. Because well, I, the, the the it was a the thing that was happening in L.A., the the riots, yeah, the Rodney, Rodney King thing. King stuff. We couldn't release. We were finished with the film, ready to release it. We had to wait months before we could release it. Really? It was done. That beautiful film was done. And we couldn't couldn't do anything about it. Those guys, Snipes and Harrelson, weren't that big then either, were no. they? I mean, they were kind of up and coming. I feel like that, that was the movie that sprung them a little bit. It was. I mean, uh, they wasn't going to even think about using Woody. He was a fifth star on a television show. Yeah. Well, a top show, but mm-hmm. he wasn't the main he right. wasn't the lead. And Wesley, nobody knew who he was. He had done a Michael Jackson video uh, where um, he's he's a dancer. He was mm-hmm. a dancer, first of all. It's Wesley's thing. Um, bad. He was one mm. of the guys in bad. Was he really? You think you bad? Yeah. Yeah. He was like, you ain't bad. And uh, <laughs> and then he, but he and Woody had made a movie with Goldie Hawn a couple of years before, a few years before that called um, Wildcats, hmm. where Goldie Hawn took over a football yeah, team. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, they, and they became friends. So Woody and Wesley knew each other since then. Okay. So they had already great chemistry. But they didn't know they were going to be working together in White Man Can't well, Jump. And who knew it was going to be such a huge blockbuster hit? Nobody too. did. It was gigantic. Nobody knew that. And if somebody says they knew it, they're lying. Really? Yeah. Because, I mean, we just thought, hey, we had a lot of fun. That was good. Next yeah. movie. Yeah. What was the budget like? Uh, it was $30 million Okay. Which At is that time, which is be about- Kind of 80, middle of the road. $80 million now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was the number one movie in the, in the country for, I think, two months. Yeah. So Which it, was like uh, maybe a Godzilla it was or, or um, what's the movie about this big ship? Oh, Titanic. Titanic. It was like what the yeah. Titanic would have done. Yeah. I mean, do, did now. So, so they 20x their money off of off of that film, yeah. you know, at, just at the box office. You probably couldn't do that movie today. You don't with think the statement? So? No, Ron. Ron and I talk a lot, and he said, well, "There's no way we could do White Man Can't Jump today because no. it was it's offensive to people, and you know the joke. It's, You'd have to it's call like, it something else. Yeah, well, you know, and then it's just a joke because yeah. I know some white guys that can jump, put their head on the rim. Yeah, people somebody so they, get bent out of shape about it. These yeah, days. I'm like, yeah. hey, I was walking, I walk in the mall sometime, and a guy come up to me, he goes, hey. This white boy can jump. I said, "Hey, bro, I was just in the movie. I, I didn't, I didn't say that. You know, I didn't really get. Yeah. I mean, they come at me like yeah. that. And yeah, in yeah, Knoxville, yeah. they're not. I guess they're not used to seeing a lot of people that do a lot of movies. Yeah, you know, you got David Keith here, but he, you don't see him. I mean, so a lot of people will come up to me. I mean, a lot will come up and say, "God, you look familiar." Let's say, and then one couple came up to me and they said, the lady said, "Oh, you're the guy from Conspiracy Theory. Were you and Julie Roberts and Mel Gibson?" I said, "Yes, ma'am." You know, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, ma'am. And then her husband or her boyfriend goes, uh-uh. Why the hell would he be right here in Knoxville? <laughs> I'm like, how do I handle this? She's nice. He's a jerk. She wants an autograph. He's jealous. Uh, so, I, you know, you have to, each situation is different. Yeah. I mean, I've had people come up to me in the men's room and saying, you know, Hey, my girlfriend wants an autograph. I don't know who the hell you are, but my girlfriend wants one. I'm like, okay, can I? That's can a great I, opening line, sir. I, yeah, can I wash my hands first? And come so you'd be fun to hang out with on a picnic. <laughs> I mean, people weird, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't understand. Here's what I don't understand: how to hand. I still have trouble handling stuff like this. Like, somebody will come up and they'll go, "Okay, okay, where do I know you from?" 
What do I? Know? What have you done? What do you? What, what do I know you from? And if they're nice and fun like that, I'll, I'll say, well, I'm not sure if we've met before. And I don't want to say, well, you probably might have seen me in a movie or TV because yeah. that sounds pompous. I did that right. in the very beginning, not knowing it would sound that way. I would right. go, oh, they would say, hey, you look familiar. I said, well, I got a movie. I just came out. And they were yeah. like, I haven't seen it. I went, okay. Well, maybe it's a TV show. Did it? No. So I feel like, oh, God, that made me feel weird. So yeah. I'm like, I'll never. I'll let somebody try to figure it out. And I'll never say, yeah. you probably saw me in a movie. I've done 60 movies, 30 television shows. That's probably where you know me from. <laughs> But I'm not going to do that because, you know, because yeah. uh, they'll say, no, I don't remember that. One. No. And I'm sitting there running down my resume. Yeah. So now I'll go, if they're, be, if they're bad people, I'll go, if they say, okay, who are you and where do I know you from? I'll go, you go first. What have you done? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like if they're jerks. Yeah. But not many people. I, I usually, yeah. people approach me really nice people. Yeah. That's good. And it's got to feel good. I mean, I know I'm sure it gets old and all that. No, but I mean, it doesn't get old. It doesn't. No, it only it only is bad when somebody is like really mean yeah. and they're just jealous. They're mostly guys. Yeah. You know, and I hate that because I love everybody. I, you know, I meet a couple and and the girl might be looking at me like some way and I don't even look at her. I go, I go yeah. right to the guy, shake his yeah. hand, go, hey, man, yeah. how you doing? Hey, man, you're a ball player. It look like you could play right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. try to give him some kind of thing. And then, yeah. But if they're just still looking at you like, you better not be looking at my girl, yeah. you know, kind of thing. That's so yeah. weird. I've yeah. never been like that. Well, mm-hmm. dude, I don't know. You, I've 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 known who you are for for a while now, and I feel like we're so lucky to have somebody like you in this oh. town. Like, not just someone who's a professional who's done so much great stuff, but also you're you're like you're an honorary volunteer. You know, you may you may not have I played bleed orange. I know you do. And, came and, so close. Though. I know, and and you are you're part of our whole athletic program. You're part of our yep. art scene here. I feel like, and yes. so I just I feel so fortunate to to get to do this and to to know you and all that man oh, and it's a pleasure man but you um you're doing aren't you doing some philanthropy stuff yes um what's see, that all about well you know obviously we have a problem in our country with hunger and, and people not yeah. having clean water and that just hurt me so much and i thought when i if i said when i didn't say when yeah. f i said when i get in a position i'm gonna do something i don't know what it is but i met a gentleman named um eric williams in la he's brilliant he's like a scientist and has everything. He's so much knowledge. He, he might appear aloof when you talk to him, but he's always thinking. One of those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, just brilliance all over him. And we, he told me, he said, you know, I know we can do something about, uh, you know, food uh, for people. And I said, what do you mean? He told me, he says, what do you think about if we could grow food inside cylinders, indoors, where there's no pesticides and we can control all that and they, they get watered every hour and they turn, the circle turns and each plant gets its own uh, you know, uh, nutrients and, and we don't have to worry about, you know, fires or droughts mm. and, uh, we can, we can feed, like you can grow, uh, 1100 heads of lettuce in two and a half months and it repeats itself. Cause you don't have to be outside. Mm. And I was like, can we do that? <laughs> and then, so he showed me the process of that. And I realized water, we get so much water, but 20% or more of the earth's water comes from condensation in the morning, mm. you know, that dew. Yeah. And if you could capture that and put that over these cylinders where mm. it just naturally, as the wheel turns, they get water just enough 24-7. Yeah, it's atmospheric, right? Yes. It's, and sometimes yeah. the plants are upside down, sometimes they're sideways, sometimes they're right side up, then they're upside down again through the day and through the night, through the 24 hours. And it's four hours that they rest. They don't 
Nothing. Yeah. So it'd be like working out, doing push-ups 20 for hours 20 a day. hours and yeah. four hours resting and yeah. then going back again or sit-ups next yeah. time. And then, mm-hmm. you know, every, and so the plants grow so much bigger and faster. And uh, I thought, can we do that? So I, I got more involved in the process and, and learning about, you know, how things are, what it would take. And I decided, okay, then I'm going to dive into that. So I'm the CEO now and nice. I have to um, stay in line with, what the invention does. And it, a lot of times people, and that's just for plants. I mean, water atmospheric pressure, you know, creates some water more than it does. It generates more in other areas. Mm -hmm. And if you could capture that. So we, we have a process that captures that water of generators that can go into any country, any place and generate the water. And uh, people have clean water. So we've got it all inspected. It's all ready to go. We're launching, uh, it's called Cures for Hunger. Nice. And uh, we had, I mean, Cures for Humanity. We had it Cures for Hunger. And we had all these Working calls. title. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. We, thought, I, we thought it was pretty yeah. good. And then we got all these calls from certain groups that said, you can't say you're curing hunger. Mm. I'm like, okay. And my attorneys, all 25 of them, mm-hmm. said, uh, you know, well, maybe you think about changing the name. Yeah, if you're already getting hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah. I'm just trying to feed people, yeah. you know? And they yeah. said, well, you can't just do that. And I was like, okay. So we we have that process and now it's, it's going to be going in Africa. Well, I want it here in the States too. Yeah. So, um, so, so you guys are bringing, bringing water to places that yeah, that don't have access to clean, water, exactly. clean drinking water. Exactly, a lot of African countries, right? Yes, and a third world, you know, third, and countries. Third world and, countries. And then look at Detroit, look at Michigan. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, Flint. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that, right here. Uh, but then also, it's not just water. It's like uh, we can grow anything. You can grow trees. You start them when they're about a foot and a half, two mm. foot tall, and you put them in these these cylinders that are around inside. Yeah, and they do the same thing. You water them, they grow, and they get a certain uh, level. And then you replant plant yeah. them. So uh, we're getting ready to talk to some big companies right now about just lettuce. You know, you can grow tomatoes every two and a half months. You don't have to wait season another year. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. the beauty about it. And you're not taking jobs away from farmers. Okay. Let's say you got one acre that you can plant corn mm-hmm. or whatever you want. You right. can plant corn, beans, tomatoes, everything you want. Okay. And that one acre, how many... How many different crops can you grow inside? Okay. Yeah. That acre becomes 20 acres inside because of, they're on a cylinder. One of, that, of one cylinder is, yeah. is like, you know, 1,100 plants. Right. I got gotcha. you. Worth of, not 1,100 so, plants, but 1,100 uh, heads of lettuce, yeah. uh, tomatoes, mm-hmm. beans. So, so it's really bolstering what these guys can already do farmers rather than exactly yeah it's more maintaining or management mm. you know and then there's a certain specific light that shines on them for you know we need all plants need light so uh and each plant needs a certain amount and so mm-hmm. that's generated and it's monitored so everything's camera every you can be at home oh let's check on the beans <laughs> let's check on the <laughs> The cauliflower, you know, <laughs> man, that's fascinating. The flowers. That's fascinating with the the condensation part. It's Isn't smart. it? Isn't it's really it? Smart. I mean, it's been here for since God created it. Yeah, and it's. I think most everything we need is here. Even yeah. though, as a speaking Native American, <laughs> I don't think a lot. Most of the plants are here. That was here. We we put concrete over them, and we've destroyed so many of our natural, um, you know, 
plants and things that they, that grandma used to put together mm -hmm. and fix your coal or fix your headache. Yeah. You know, sassafras tea is one of the best things you can drink, you know? Yeah. The All roots, from the earth, roots. man. Yeah. We are part of the earth. We are the earth. Mm -hmm. We're just like a plant. We're more associated with a plant than we are with some animals, if you can believe that. Yeah. We're, we're just like a plant, you know? These plants are living... They need oxygen. They need all these things. You would be surprised of the similar traits and similar things that we have in our bodies and blood and, and plasma that these plants have. It's mm -hmm. crazy. I, I I thought I was in a horror movie when I found out all that. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's it's interesting. And we, we got to have one to take care of the other. We got to keep the earth going to take care of ourselves. We can't mess this up. And place if we up. realize we are the same, yeah. then it... Somebody asked me, said, what do you, how do you uh, think you can change the world? I was like, that's a little big task there. Yeah. I said, I think we can, by Cures for Humanity, can change the way people view things. Mm. Then we change. Change the framing. Yes. And like I said, the, your perception is your reality. Yeah. And we, we can change that perception yeah, I don't think you could, like acting, I don't think you can teach anybody how to act. And I teach acting. Yeah. I've been coaching, I'm directing now, Ball of Confusion is getting ready to come out. But I think Ball you Ball of could, Confusion? Mm -hmm, that's the history of basketball and, awesome. and it's global impact. And it's a documentary. Gotcha. And I've been making it for 12, 14, almost 14 years. Awesome. Uh, again, I don't think you could teach anybody how to act. I think you could teach them how to get in touch with their emotions mm. and then let them go. Then give them the scene. And I'm not going to tell you how to cry. You've cried before. I'm not going to tell you how to laugh. You've laughed before. I'm not going to tell you how to get pissed off. You, you know, if it says, oh, he gets angry and he throws things around. Well, it's how you do it. Not how. It's just a name on a script. You don't know what. So you have to personalize each character that you, you're playing. But you put yourself in there. Mm -hmm. And the audience is not going to know. if that is that the way he laughs? Or is that he's made up a lot? Like, you know, look at that. Meryl Streep has a little silly little laugh. She's cute, right? <laughs> she doesn't laugh in that way in every movie. She might throw a little something in there, but she creates the character, but puts herself and her personality in that character. It has to be uniquely yours, you know? To be really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can get by with just, you know, being average, but I, who wants to just be average? You got to own it a little bit. I have a music uh, company. It's a uh, it's like a media company, and I have a lot of have a few artists that I represent, and oh, I cool. mentor singers from you know country and western. You know, create a show around the Joe, you know, Cotton Eye Joe, oh, called yeah. Country Roads, which is also a new beer. It's, that, it's that a show Country Eye Joe. Country Eye Joe, yeah, Cotton Eye Joe, yeah. With um, it, it's it, and um, I think there's I don't know how many people have gone to act uh, uh, singers and musicians have come through there, and Chuck Ward, the owner, he bought Cotton Eye Joe two and a half years ago and fixed it up. And now, and it's like one of the top, if not the top country Western clubs in the country. I believe it. And the, and WOKI is a, is a great radio station here for country music. So we have all that. We have HGTV here. And I thought, why not have a TV series and have the next, who's the next country music? So country a competition Western show. Well, it's not starting out like that. It's just showing how it can be. Mm. And we're going to morph into that. It's going to be another it's going to be a <laughs> tore everything up. No. Uh, it's going to morph, uh, you know, spin off into that. Right now, it's about how these people, all the talent here in Knoxville and surrounding areas, have been here all along, and we see them. And we put them through the Joe. Once they come through the Joe, then they're off to Nashville <laughs> or wherever. I love it, dude. Yeah, I'm excited. 
to learn about that. Like yeah, you'll like that. We'll, we'll yeah. invite you to the premiere when we have the premiere. Let's keep in touch, man. Absolutely. I really appreciate you doing this a lot, and I've been, I'm really glad to get to know you. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's course, been man. fun, too. Good. Well, take care. We'll, we'll see do you it soon. again. I'd love to. All right. Well, wasn't that amazing? Love that dude. What a nice guy. Be sure to check out some of those causes that Silk is a part of and uh, what he's working on right now. Uh, he's a great dude. He doesn't have to do all that, but he, he is. He's trying to make the world a better place, and I appreciate that about him. But thank you guys for listening today. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, follow us on Instagram at South of Scruffy. Send me an email, southofscruffy at gmail.com. Go to the website, southofscruffy.com. Check it out there. Find ways that you can support the show there. I appreciate it so much, and I thank all of you guys for listening. Have a great day. Matt Honkinen, play me out.